Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. I'm Casey. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. This is a special edition of the podcast. I'm joined today in the studio by two amazing women. Tiffany Kelly is a CSU alum and assistant director of the Native American Cultural Center here at CSU. And Lauren Chief Elk is an organizer, prison abolitionist, and educator who aims her work at reimagining violence against women and justice. Today's episode is a conversation between these two women and the support they offer the Native community. Before we get started, we have this question that we ask our guests on the podcast about saline identities so the listeners at home can hear who you are. Would you like to share each one of you some of your identities before I turn it over to you? Yeah. Hi, everyone. This is Tiffany Kelly. Um, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, for me, I think my most daily identities um, are that of being an indigenous woman um, and feminist, uh, specifically thinking about indigenous feminism. Um, I identify as a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. I also identify as multiracial, and that has, um, I think, heavily influenced um, my experience as a Native woman and also being in spaces um, with Native folks. So those are some of my salient identities. I'm also, I like to think of myself as a scholar and an educator, and I like working on college campuses, so... Yeah, that's a little bit about me. Hi, my name is Lauren Chiefalk. Um, I am also indigenous feminist. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am Assiniboine, Blackfeet, and Lakota. I consider Montana my home, um, and I've recently been back in Montana to continue more work with Native women and the issues that face us, along with being able to go to universities around the country and talk and organize with other people around these issues and do some more radical, different types of education. So I'm really grateful to be here today at Colorado State. So thanks everyone for joining us and having me. Great. Um, we'll, we'll get started. So really our first question, um, Lauren, is really just can you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on lately and what's you talked a little bit about it in your intro, but what's kind of on the forefront for you right now as you've moved back to Montana? I moved back to Montana to be with my friends and family. Before that, I was living in San Francisco, and I've kind of spent a lot of time throughout my life going back and forth between Montana, different places in Montana, in the Bay Area, um, and along with living in some other places across the U.S. I've been working on writing more, just personally and for different projects that has been that's been really good. Um, I've also been doing a lot of consulting on different things for students and different people who are uh, doing a variety of work across different industries. But everything's still kind of focused on on violence against women issues, um, particularly in the abolition context. You know, really organizing with Warren Moore and kind of meeting other people who have abolition and anarchist policies and and politics um, and trying to link gender violence issues to those greater ideas and struggles. And that's kind of been most important, a lot of political work around that. Great. So um, we know you've done some work around the prison systems and reporting structures. So uh, can you talk a little bit about how you see that work intersection with the interpersonal violence um, that survivors are experiencing and then maybe how specifically that might show up within Native communities? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's really nice to see kind of abolition take on a more serious narrative uh, among a lot of people. I was talking earlier about how even five years ago when I was talking about, you know, connecting these things to interpersonal violence that a lot of people were not on board with this. And, you know, I thought I was really out of my mind. And 
people with abolition politics. The, abolition politics has certainly existed for a very long time, um, but has it's definitely been on the fringe of more extreme ideas. So it's been really great to work with people and talk with people who are getting more accepting of this and more accepting of ideas like, hey, you're right, you know, maybe we don't absolutely need the carceral system around. There's so many instances of state violence, um, including how the state responds to violence against women, that we should look beyond this. We should start thinking about defunding and disarming. Gender violence issues are still on the minority part of kind of abolition politics. Um, Obviously, we think of a lot of the system around and how it's applied unfairly and asymmetrically with, you know, the drug war and how we criminalize poor people, homeless people, the racism, the mass incarceration over super minor infractions. So it's really nice to start talking about how the specific state violence is against women, um, whether that's talking about law enforcement themselves being huge perpetrators of sexual and domestic violence, whether that's talking about how we specifically are criminalizing women for mental health issues, um, the war on mothers, sex work is a big and ever-increasing thing uh, that the state is cracking down on just more and more harshly every single day. One of the things I talk about in regards to missing and murdered Native women, part of that missing is how many victims are we criminalizing? Mm -hmm. And especially as the women's prison system is the fastest growing prison population that we have, way above and beyond men's. And so connecting all of these things in the bigger conversation about justice in the state and decolonization, abolition has been has been um, really important work for me. And I'm very glad at kind of in the direction that it has been moving in. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. We read your piece on mass shootings and the link to domestic violence. Can you elaborate a little on how you see domestic violence relating to or supporting other types of violence towards Native women's experiences? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, there's kind of been a resurgence in how we talk about DV and violence against women because of these bigger public attacks that have been happening. There's been this bigger conversation and revamped conversation around the links between men's violence against women and then their greater acts of violence. And I think the conversation around a lot of this is really troubling. One, there's kind of this effort to say that violence against women is a warning sign. And I don't particularly like that framing because this is suggesting that we should only care about violence against women when there are more important, bigger mm. acts of, you know, these bigger atrocities happening. You know, domestic violence is not a warning sign. It is very real. And we need to care about these individual incidences, not just when abusers turn around and murder more people. Right. And so I think it's important to talk about the link between these things and kind of the continuation without minimizing what happens to women, because that's that's an unproductive way to kind of address these things. So I've definitely tried to have a conversation around the language we use Mm -hmm. in discussing all of this, especially when domestic violence incidences themselves are the biggest incidences of mass shootings. So a mass shooting is defined by, I think, three or four people are killed in one Mm -hmm. thing. And that's usually family violence. That's usually murder-suicide that happens in the home. And so these are the mass shootings. Right. Um, They're not preludes to them Mm -hmm. yeah thank you and you know the other part of that is this i think it's a little bit dangerous to 
want the state to formally classify these uh, incidences as terrorism. Um, this is kind of a, a tangential topic to talking about the prison system in the state. So what we just saw, you know, with the Omar Mateen trial, um, he was the man who shot up Pulse nightclub in Florida. And um, the state had tried to charge his wife and make her responsible and say she was responsible for what he did and that she assisted him. Mm -hmm. Um, It turned out there were a lot of shady things that happened in the course of that investigation, but they actually threw terrorism, aiding terrorism charges Mm -hmm. at her. And to me, this was another incident, of course, of criminalizing victims and making women responsible for their husband's violence. And these strategies that we want, you know, harsher punishments and to reinforce the state and want a formal recognition of terrorism um, are always going to backfire on women, just as all these other anti-violence policies mm-hmm. have. And, you know, criminally making women responsible for not stopping their boyfriend's or husband's violence, which is absurd. But that is the way more and more things are going. And while I think we can casually talk about whether or not men doing this or or even just the domestic violence itself being terrorism, it's a very dangerous road to go down mm-hmm. wanting the state to be implementing more and more of this. So kind of along that line, but also switching a little bit, um, you know, I was thinking about how Native women experience interpersonal violence and how jurisdiction and states and uh, federal policies and stuff contribute to that. But also, how do you think society's views of indigenous communities and Native communities or Native women and specifically might affect or impact how our communities are experiencing this violence? In the past several years, especially since the 2013 reauthorization of VAWA, violence against Native women has definitely um, become a mainstream, more mainstream talking point, Mm -hmm. at least. And, you know, I think um, a lot of social media activism has really helped a lot of that. Um, It's so funny to me, not like funny, haha, but... Mm -hmm. You know, seeing missing and murdered Indigenous women being talked about and the MMIW being talked about. And I remember being on the Internet years ago when that was just a hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> and now that that has morphed into like greater movements mm-hmm. and greater work um, is really something. And um, so I think that's great because there's generally speaking, just not really awareness or understanding even of um Native people existing and what is happening in our communities, whether that is in a rural tribal setting Mm -hmm. or in cities. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm really grateful that at least this has been something that has come into more people's consciousness, Mm -hmm. along with talking about, you know, decolonization and um, kind of what that means in a greater sense. Mm -hmm. And then along with talking about violence against um, Native women specifically. So I think obviously there's a lot more to learn and a lot more to go, but we've definitely seen a a, a renewed mm-hmm, effort mm-hmm. and really courtesy from a lot of different efforts to both work on this ourselves and own communities and have a more national discussion mm-hmm. and national awareness and so forth mm-hmm. on that. I think there's still a lot to do, obviously, with attitude changing in regards to racism, sexism, misogyny, mm-hmm. um, even amongst our own people. We mm-hmm. are in very desperate need of that. 
um, especially in coming from a lot of our people who came from matriarchal societies mm-hmm. and what does it mean to really get back to that in regards to treatment and respect of women and holding women of high regard and not replicating all these oppressive systems. You know, one of the things I was discussing earlier was that in regards to how structurally things work, the, you know, stemming from the Major Crimes Act, mm-hmm. Native communities still don't even have full jurisdiction to criminally control what's happening in regards to interpersonal violence. Um, and at the same time, even if we reach that point, at some point, get there, should we really be replicating the right. PIC amongst ourselves? Mm-hmm. Personally, no. <laughs> I don't think we should be doing that. Um, it is sovereignty is important and being able to address things ourselves is important, but like in our also our own ways. Right. Thank you. You you mentioned decolonization as a movement, and I'm just curious what your thoughts are and how that's become almost like decolonize your mind or it's become a metaphor and, uh, and, and almost being used like a buzzword. And so I'm wondering just what your thoughts are around that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, my my general stance on decolonization and understanding what it means in a broader, more serious term is that, you know, undoing the structures that are oppressive to Native people as a effort that needs to happen as a, you know, a nationwide thing, like in the context of settler colonialism in mm-hmm. the United States being a settler colonial state. One of the projects that I created years ago was with a number of different women, and it was also in April, Sexual Assault and Awareness Month, and we called it Decolonize S-A-A-M. Mm-hmm. Um but meant it in the very specific context of talking about policing, talking right. about prisons, talking about the nonprofit industrial complex, like these structures that are oppressive to us. So we did mean that in a very literal sense mm-hmm. of like part of the anti-violence movement and decolonizing the anti-violence movement, meaning like rethinking right. reliance on repressive institutions as the problem solvers to all of this. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there's something called carceral feminism and carceral referring to incarceration. Mm-hmm. So positioning policing and the courts and prisons as the primary answer to gender violence. And mo- and so we've really tried to you know move away from that, mm-hmm. that calling for more strengthening of the laws and strengthening the police and more money to all this is is not the direction that we need to be moving in. Mm-hmm. So decolonizing that in a very literal sense. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I just, yeah, you hear it so much now and uh, the, the decolonize your mind. And one of the faculty members recently was like, it means give us our effing land back. That's it. <laughs> we were all, yep, pretty much. So <laughs> yeah, it literally, me- it, it, it has a meaning. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, I guess shifting a little bit, what is some of the work that you've seen or have done within native communities to work around finding healing through community and engaging communities in the work of healing around trauma and violence? So one of the projects I had that I started as a totally grassroots effort with other Native women was a digital mapping and database project. Mm -hmm. And that, outside of doing the very specific data collecting and the technical parts of um, the website, uh, it was really about, one, visualization as a visual learner, you know, I really believe on using art, using different depictions of things, things that people can 
C to then be able to um, conceptualize the mm-hmm. problems and because we really can't solve them until we have, you know, an understanding. Mm-hmm. So there was that component of it. The other component was this being a place for Native women, loved ones, families to have have as a memorial tool, mm-hmm. have a place that they could put on information, um, even use it as an awareness tool for themselves, for families and loved ones who still have women missing in their lives and to, to put information out there. And, and then also an educational tool to be able to teach what we um, called how we disappear, missing in life and missing in death. So to be able to really educate people in understanding like what missing means in the mm-hmm. context of not just physically the act of violence that potentially has happened, but then what happens in the media and what's happening actually in our state and national databases, what's happening in law enforcement, prisons. Mm-hmm. So kind of the full scope of um, missing. And that was a great organizing tool that we had um, for a while um, partnered with that with some of the other issues regarding violence uh, that we talk about, you know, general things of consent and healthy sex. I had a talk recently with uh, one of my friends who I organized with back in Montana about how we don't even talk about, you know, healthy sex and pleasure and things that mm-hmm. are fun and boundaries and all these things that we still have so much shame over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is definitely a result of boarding schools and Christianity, Catholicism, all of these things that kind of have just been um, violently inscribed on mm-hmm. our people and then just passed down, passed down, passed down. So, so much trauma, so much hurt, so much shame that really so much we're trying to breakthrough around mm-hmm. as well, as well as talking about all of these structural yeah. problems. Great. Thank you. Well, that was our last kind of formal question. Was there something that um, we didn't ask that you wanted wanted us to ask or that you would want to talk about a little <laughs> bit about? Um, these were great questions. I guess just one idea of justice in terms of, you know, I get asked a lot, well, what do we do now mm-hmm. then? If we're not going to have police, if we're not going to have prisons, what can we possibly do? Um, you know, an abolition does not mean nothing. It doesn't mean no consequences or no accountability. It means, you know, we're going to have to get a little more creative. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not like the prison system or police have existed forever. Right. I mean, they're a fairly new invention. And for Native people, almost a brand new invention. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, our, our people across nations and tribes definitely administered punishment and consequences um severe ones for violence against women for violence against two-spirit people Mm -hmm. for violence against children that's Mm -hmm. why in a lot of communities it was entirely unheard of because of the way societal structure was set up and because the consequences and accountability was severe and direct so um I like to remind people of that I like to also remind people about the way we can community support I think money is a very important part of justice. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be pooling money for victims, survivors in a much more material and specific way that's not just throwing money at nonprofit systems, Mm -hmm. but like actually giving victims money specifically because of how much this violence costs, because of how much this impacts our life monetarily, that that is our most direct form of justice Mm -hmm. is my main one alternate idea. And just encourage people to think about what else can be um, an accountability measure that's not 911. 
Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. It was great spending some time with you and uh, listening to what you're working on and just, I think, things we can do better, both within the community as Native folks, but also for non-Native folks to think about how we're experiencing trauma, but also how we can work together to start to dismantle and disrupt some of these systems. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So that's all for this special episode of We Believe You. I'll say here that Lauren Chifalk was our keynote speaker for Take Back the Night, um, which is an annual event that we hold at CSU, and it's also an international event to raise awareness and raise voice and story to people who have experienced interpersonal violence. And we were very lucky that she agreed to doing our podcast as part of her visit to CSU. That's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's W-G-A-C at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.